Welcome to the FemiPod. These are conversations about females for everyone to listen to, learn from and engage with. Brought to you by your Femi founders, Esther Kewen and myself, Lydia O'Donnell. Welcome back to the Femi Pod for episode number 95. I'm Esty and I am here with Lids. And in this episode, we welcome back to the pod our incredible Femi expert, Dr. Izzy Smith. Dr. Izzy is an Australian-based doctor working in endocrinology and is part of our medical expert team, guiding Femi on all things women's health. In this episode, we deep dive into contraception for women and the pros and cons of the different forms from the oral contraceptive pill, also known as the OCP, through to the different IUDs. We will also chat about the potential impacts on performance. So welcome back to the show, Dr. Izzy Smith. How are you? I am really good. I'm counting down the days to the end of the year. I am excited for the year ahead, for FEMI, for my own training, for work. So everything is pretty good my end. Amazing. And how's 2023 been for you? It's been busy, but it's been a great year. I've worked in eating disorders mainly this year, which has given me a lot of skills going forward, which I think will be beneficial for my work with female athletes. My own training has been going well with heaps of PBs this year and especially a race in Tasmania that I'll share this. Actually, it's quite relevant to what we do at Femi. I am from Tasmania. I used to live there. And the race that got me into running was called Point to Pinnacle. It's a race from sea level up to the top of a mountain. And it's a half marathon on the road, but up almost 1,300 metres of elevation. I left Tasmania and did a PB in 2014. At the time, I had relative energy deficiency and I had, including in that functional hypothalamic amenorrhea, so loss of periods, I, you know, was a bit leaner than I am now, but mainly I didn't fuel my body properly. And I had accepted I might never break that PB, but that was okay because now I was healthy. My hormones were working properly. I had a menstrual cycle and I went down to Tassie recently and I broke that PB. So it was incredibly empowering for me personally, but also professionally to, you know, my mantra is focus on health and performance will follow. So that was a real highlight to end my year. Amazing. It's the most uh, incredible thing to hear when, yeah, women change the way they um, feel their bodies and, you know, come out of potentially um, a point in their life that wasn't, you know, maybe the healthiest and then perform at such an amazing level and actually beat, you know, times that they used to do in those in that point of their life. Um, we've had a few stories similar to that for me. So it just takes a lot of patience and work, but we're so proud of you, Izzy. That is so, so cool. It's a podcast, so you can't see my big smiley face, but thank you so much, Esther. And you guys have, you know, guided me in my own training um, as well. So oh, there's just a lot of positive vibes and love going on here. We haven't even started the episode. <laughs> I know. Let's let's dive into it. Um, so, yeah, obviously today we're chatting about uh, contraception and there's so many unknowns when it comes to this for women. And it can feel quite overwhelming trying to understand all the different ways and options um, that are out there. But if we start with the oral contraceptive pill, there's also a lot of different kinds of the OCP. But as a whole, what is it and how does it work? 
I'm going to just do one little preamble here before we talk about the different types of contraception. And I will talk about potential negative impacts of hormonal contraception during this podcast. But I want to preface this with emphasizing how important effective contraception is for all women. Women are allowed to enjoy having sex and they need to have, you know, the reproductive rights um, and over their own body, especially in some parts of the world where access to medical terminations is a crime. So I want to emphasize that contraception is so important. We're allowed to enjoy having sex, have lots of sex, and we you know, need to be able to have access to good contraception. So it's a really important thing for its primary use, which is preventing unwanted pregnancy. So that's my preamble. Um, next thing, the combined oral contraceptive pill. I will refer to this now as the pill, as that is what it's colloquially referred to. And that is a combination of a synthetic estrogen and progesterone. For a synthetic progesterone, we call it a progestogen. And there is a few different types of progesterone. And there's also different types of the synthetic estrogen. By giving high dose uh, hormones, we turn off the messages from our brain, which is called LH and FSH, they're hormones from the pituitary to the ovaries to make hormones because the body's saying, hey, you've got heaps of hormones, you don't need to make any more. So it turns off those messages to the ovaries. That means that you're not making your natural hormones and you're also not going to ovulate each month and that's how it's effective as a contraception. The synthetic estrogen component, uh, there's a few different types. It's usually ethanol, estradiol, but now we do have formulations of the pill that have the same uh, molecular structure as our body's natural estrogen, which is called 17-beta-estradiol. And then there's different what we call generations of the synthetic progestogen. Some of those progestogens can have different effects. Some of them can be acting on the testosterone receptor. So we say they can be androgenic, so act like androgens in the body. Some of them can have an anti-androgenic effect, so they actually block the testosterone receptors. And that's important for strength training, especially because we do know testosterone has beneficial effects for you know muscle atrophy and strength. Then some of the progestogens have been associated with increased risk of um, DVTs. There's the Yaz pill that got quite a lot of attention and that type of progestogen uh, has been shown with increased DVTs. So when we talk about the pill, we're actually talking about so many different potential formulations, which it's impossible to discuss each of them and you'd also fall asleep with boredom in one podcast, but there are lots of different types of the pill. Generally, the pill, it does get a really bad reputation often as being quite dangerous. And for most individuals, it's actually very safe. But because so many people are on the pill, it means that those rare risks and complications such as a DVT do happen. So we also hear a lot about the pill increasing risk of breast cancer, which is true. It slightly increases risk of breast cancer by about 20%. So if our risk of breast cancer was you know, one in a thousand, it would make it 1.2 in a thousand. However, the pill then decreases risk of other cancers such as ovarian cancer, endometrial cancer and bowel cancer. And some of those benefits are, you know, for long lasting. So after someone has been on the pill. So that's a quick summary of the pill. 
Thanks, Izzy. It seems uh, like super complex and we understand that there's obviously so many different types of poo and it's hard to kind of like chat through all of them. Um, but, you know, I feel like when people try to explain the poo, I guess ourselves, non-medical people, um, we speak about the poo like flatlining hormones. Is that kind of the right term to explain it in a, the most like simplistic way? Exactly. People often ask me, can I still track my menstrual cycle when I'm on the pill? But when you're on the pill, you're having the same dose of hormones every day through the synthetic you know, formulation in the tablet and your ovaries aren't making natural hormones. So you don't have that rise and fall of hormones in a regular menstrual cycle. If you take the sugar pill, so the uh, withdrawal bleed, you will have a slight decrease in those hormones, which will then go back up once you start uh, the pills again. Yeah, yeah, debunk the myth that when you're on the pill, you get a period, period, even if you are having a bleed, correct? Yes, it's not a true period in that you haven't ovulated. And it's a period because you've withdrawn the synthetic hormones, which allows the you know lining of the endometrium to thin and fall away, and that's the withdrawal bleed. So it means we often talk about the a period being a great marker of, you know, health that we're fueling our bodies, we're getting enough recovery. The period that you have on the pill doesn't indicate that because it's being just induced by, you know, changes in the synthetic hormones in the tablets you're taking. Awesome. Thanks for clearing that one up. Let's chat about the potential impact on performance when taking the pill. You spoke a little bit about the uh, differences in our strength training and how the pill can impact strength training. Kind of what is the evidence around those impacts of the pill if there is any? It's a great question. And unfortunately, the studies are very small and short term. And I can see how it would be quite difficult to do really good quality studies on this topic. So breaking it into strength training versus uh, overall aerobic fitness. I'll again preface, preface this with most of the difference in studies, the outcomes are really small. And there's been a meta-analysis not long ago by McNulty and all showing there is a trend that when you're on the pill, your performance will be slightly less, but it is such a small amount that the overall you know, impact is going to be trivial. If we think about strength training, and we think about what the pill does. We do know when you're on the pill, it decreases growth hormone and the other hormone related to growth hormone called insulin-like growth factor. And they're important for, you know, muscle growth recovery. People abuse them, you know, like anabolic steroids. People also use abuse growth hormone. So you do see lower growth hormone on the pill. And there has been some small randomized controlled trials where they put people on the pill. They had then natural menstruating women and they did strength programs and they compared the strength gains and the people who were not on the pill had slightly uh, you know, more benefit. Again, these are studies of small people, 30 people versus 30 people in a 10-week study. It's not amazing data, but there has been some small randomized control trials showing that. In saying that, there's been studies that have shown no real difference. There haven't been any studies really showing the pill would be beneficial for strength training then. So to conclude, some data showing your strength performance and gains might be slightly less if you're on the pill. And that is similar to what we see for aerobic type performance. Generally, the data has shown there is minimal, minimal change. I often see uh, 
discussed that the pill has been shown to decrease VO2 max. And that's true. There's a couple of studies, but they were really, really small. The studies were, the main one quoted was in 2003 and it was only 14 women. So seven women versus seven women over a two month period doing a training period, you know, highly trained athletes, they all had to have a VO2 max at least greater than 50. And the people on the pill had a decrease in their VO2 max by about 4% versus the people not on the pill had an improvement of about 1.5%. So even though that study is 20 years old, that doesn't mean that it's not a good study, but it was small numbers. So overall, the data generally supports there might be a very small improvement in performance if you're not on the pill. And if we think about how the pill works and the influence it has on our other hormones like growth hormone, that would make sense. But again, the actual overall evidence is quite small and we also you know, need to take into account that this is so individualized. If someone has really terrible periods that can be benefit, you know, benefited from being on the pill, that's going to improve their performance more. If someone has terrible uh, premenstrual dysthymic disorder and the pill is helpful for them, that's going to improve their performance more. So the last thing I would want someone to do who's listening to this podcast would go, oh, the pill is going to have a really negative impact on my performance. If I ever want to improve in my training, I need to go off it. The evidence just doesn't support that being the case. It's a long-winded answer. I hope that's been useful. No, that was a that was a great answer. Yeah, I think it's just so important. Like, like you said at the start, there has been a lot of um, hype around how bad the pill is lately, and like people, women should just get off it. But it's awesome to hear someone like you speak about the actual facts that are out there and, and, you know, hopefully give a little bit more confidence to women who have chosen to take the pill and know that if it's working for them, then that's absolutely okay. Um, And you sort of touched on a few other reasons that women might be on the pill, um, obviously apart from um, not wanting to get pregnant and then a couple of things you just mentioned there, but are there any other reasons that someone might want to be put on the pill? So I sometimes put people on the pill if they have polycystic ovarian syndrome and they're not uh, having a period, so they have amenorrhea, because that can be quite a dangerous situation if their body's making natural estrogen but not making progesterone. Remember, you have to ovulate to make progesterone because that can cause growth of the lining of the womb of the endometrium and actually lead to endometrial cancer. So for some women, they might be on the pill if they have polycystic ovarian syndrome. For some people, it can be beneficial actually for their mood. Most people find that the pill is a kind of neutral or has a negative impact on their mood. But for some women with quite significant premenstrual dysthymic disorder, as Lydia said, flatlining those hormones so there's not a big, you know, variation month to month can be beneficial. They are the main reason. Sometimes if someone has incredibly heavy periods, uh, you can go on the pill. Um, other options would be IUD. It's not addressing the underlying cause. It's managing the symptoms. Again, endometriosis, the pill does not manage or fix underlying endometriosis, but it can assist in some of, you know, managing some of the symptoms. So again, this is so individualized. And what you said before, Esther, about, you know, you want women who maybe be on the pill to not worry if that's working really well for them. All I can do is share the evidence. I don't have, you know, the, the I'm not some messiah who has, you know, magical knowledge from the gods. My role is to share the evidence, help people understand the risk and, you know, 
pros, benefits, and then in their individual individual situation, apply it and decide what's right for them. That's why we love you, Izzy, because you are always just sharing evidence, which is so good because, like you said, there's just so much out there online and not necessarily all of it is, is true, you know. So we appreciate you for sharing your knowledge. We hear this story quite often in the sport of running in particular of women who have potentially lost their period and are suffering relative energy deficiency syndrome and going to the doctors and getting put on the pill to what they are told to return their periods. Why or why not is that the correct thing to do? Um, Like it is a very common story amongst runners. I think I joked with you when we made Femi Theory, which for anyone listening is a course about you know, female athletes. And I said, my main goal of making this course is that no one ever goes to their doctor again with functional hypothalamic amenorrhea and told it's normal because you're a runner, you can go on the pill. (laughs) Um, So it's not the right solution at all. So again, losing your period as an athlete is usually from functional hypothalamic amenorrhea from underfueling related to relative energy deficiency syndrome. It's not always you need to have other causes investigated. Could it be a prolactin secreting pituitary tumour? Could it be PCOS? You know, there's lots of different causes. But most commonly in athletes, it will be that functional hypothalamic amenorrhea where the brain has stopped sending the LH and FSH to the ovaries to make hormones because it wouldn't be an opportune time for that woman to fall pregnant because her body's under so much strain. The pill is just further suppressing that LH and FSH. It is not helping the natural cycles come back. It's also preventing the athlete from knowing if she's, you know, improved her nutrition and she's been able to get her cycles back naturally. So the pill actually masks functional hypothalamic amenorrhea. And in honesty, that's my main concern with the pill and athletes. I think for most athletes, the impact on performance is trivial. My concern is the masking relative energy deficiency syndrome. We know with relative energy deficiency syndrome, you have, sorry, with functional hypothalamic amenorrhea, a part of REDS, you have low estrogen because you're not making hormones. And that increases your risk of osteoporosis and osteopenia and stress fractures. They've done studies that show when in that situation, if people are put on their pill, that doesn't improve their bone density. You can do topical estrogen, like through a gel or a patch, which has got evidence for improving bone density, and it will not uh, prevent natural menstrual cycles returning if the underlying cause affects nutrition, training loads, etc. So, the pill, although it, um, you know, doesn't have a big negative impact on performance, where yeah, my real concern in athletes is exactly this situation. It's not regulating the cycle. It's flatlining the hormones. It's suppressing the messages from the brain more. It's preventing the athlete knowing if she's improved her nutrition. It's not offering bone protection. I hear that spoken about a lot. There is no evidence that it improves bone density in this setting. So it's not the appropriate treatment. Awesome. That's so, yeah, so good to know and so important to know for people going to the doctor um, and, you know, getting that help to have that knowledge prior is, yeah, so important. Um, So thank you, Izzy. Yeah. And I will just say it is, there's a big expectation on GPs to be specialists in everything. I am an endocrinologist with an interest in female athletes. So of course I'm going to be really up to date in this niche area, expecting your local GP who doesn't, you know, specialize in this area to be really up to date on the evidence is just completely unrealistic. So please be kind and 
to your healthcare staff. Um, they should be open to you talking to them and saying, oh, I'm not sure if that's right. Um, and they shouldn't say, you know, no, the pills, what you should be on, but please, you know, we, um, there's a lot that GPs are expected to do. And I, and I, 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 I get upset sometimes when they, you know, spoken about badly in saying that I also hear people have terrible experiences with the healthcare system as I did as a young athlete with amenorrhea as well. So yes, just, just interjecting that. Sorry. Yeah. And just on that as while we're here. Uh, we do have quite a few women coming to us asking us where they can find, you know, um, GPs and people in the medical system where they can feel comfortable to go and get the, like, correct help. Is there any, like, resources or, like, places that we can direct people to to find that support? There isn't really a database that exists right now. It's something that I would say is needed and I'm not sure if the AIS have anything. I don't think they do. But my recommendation would be to see if you do have amenorrhea, I think you should see an endocrinologist, especially if you're not trying to conceive. Sometimes if the uh, amenorrhea and you're wanting to have you know, a pregnancy, it's more appropriate to see a gynecologist obstetrician. But if you have amenorrhea and an athlete, I would recommend seeing an endocrinologist with an interest in women's health and bone health because they will be up to date with the evidence on, you know, the best estrogen, what level of estrogen you need from the topical patches to improve bone density, et cetera. Um, or if you are seeing a GP, try and find someone with an interest in women's health. The Australian Menopause Society does have a database for um, GPs with an interest in menopause, which is actually quite similar uh, principles to treating um, functional hypothalamic amenorrhea or other, you know, disorders of, you know, loss of periods that could be a good place um, to look as well. Awesome tips. Um, and we get this question a fair bit sometimes um, from some of the athletes or just women we've worked with who, you know, through their own experience have made the decision to come off the pill and they may have been on it for a really long time. Um, how do they go about this? Like, do they just stop taking it and hope for the best? And then also what should someone expect, you know, in the first few months, like when should they expect their cycle to come back and when should they maybe reach out for help if it hasn't? Yeah. So great question. Um, and you can, you can just stop the pill. You should have a return of menstrual cycles within three months. If you haven't, I would recommend uh, seeing uh, your GP and having the hormone levels checked the LH, the FSH, the estrogen, progesterone, uh, you know, discuss about whether you need to have a pelvic ultrasound, you know, have conditions worked up. Because, for example, if you have polycystic ovarian syndrome and you go on the pill, it will manage the symptoms of polycystic ovarian syndrome. But if you stop the pill, you will then, you know, could still have underlying polycystic ovarian syndrome. It won't have treated the underlying cause. So that is something, and I do talk to women about this especially if they're wanting to have a baby maybe in two three four years but they've been on the pill since they were 15 and they're now 30 I sometimes suggest going off the pill to see if they do have a regular menstrual cycle because if they don't have a regular menstrual cycle and then it's much better to know this at 30 than 35 because your egg quality will be better you'll have more opportunity to see a fertility doctor and have things um, managed appropriately when you've got more time when your fertility is still at its peak. So that's a bit of an aside. Um, then back to what we were saying, yes, you can stop the pill. I would recommend if yeah, if you haven't had the periods come back within three months, you should see a doctor. Things to expect, you will get hairier. 
So just letting you know, even if you don't have a condition with elevated testosterone, such as PCOS or uh, there's some kind of what we call like isolated, you know, Herschelism, you will get a bit hairier. Women have hairs on their bodies. That is normal. I think in society we have been made to think that we don't, but we do. So expect a little bit more hair around your thighs, your bottom. That's just that's something to expect. Some people will get some acne because the pill decreases testosterone and it's androgens that act on the sebum glands and cause increased oil production that can cause acne. So you might notice some acne, especially initially as your body um, you know, starts to produce hormones and gets you used to having testosterone back in your system. Then, yes, um, your natural menstrual cycle will come back and uh, obviously contraception will be important as well. Remember, you can conceive before your pers- first period has come uh, come back because you'll ovulate and then two weeks later you'll have your first period. So a mistake that can be made is someone goes, oh, I haven't got my periods back yet. I can have unprotected sex. But you can conceive before that first period has come. So important to use um, other forms of contraception straight away. Okay, amazing. I am learning so much. <laughs> I, not that I'm on the pill or have been on the pill since I was a teenager, but it's so interesting to um, just learn this thing. Like, yeah, I feel like it's such good information to know. Let's uh, move on to IUDs. Can you just explain what is an IUD? Again, I know there are a few different options, but actually how does an IUD work? Yeah, so IUD stands for intrauterine device. And there's two main types. There's ones that have a synthetic progesterone. So progesterone that thins the lining of the endometrium it changes the cervical mucus um, so sperm can't, you know, penetrate the egg and that's a highly effective contraception. It does have, uh, you know, synthetic hormones but they're mainly localised to the um, the uterus. There will be a little bit of systemic absorption but women generally will still ovulate so that means you're still making natural oestrogen and what is beneficial in that setting is that you can, easily do a blood test and see what the estrogen levels are and be reassured that someone doesn't have functional hypothymic amenorrhea, even if they're not having a regular period. Because some people with the progesterone IUD, its main word is name is Marina. There's a lower dose one called the Kylina, but usually people are on the Marina. Some people's periods will become really light, if at all. So they find it harder to track their cycle, but you can still do blood tests to see the estrogen levels. And if you're really, um, you know, astute and aware with your body, you might notice at different parts of the month, like when you ovulate, you have some breast tenderness because there's a spike in estrogen. You might have increased libido. There's increased testosterone. So some women, even if they're not having periods, feel they can kind of track their cycle, even with the marina. Then there's a lower dose version called the Kylina, which is slightly smaller. This need they both need to sit in through the cervix so for someone who hasn't had a vaginal childbirth that means it might be quite uncomfortable to have it inserted um some people may have it inserted under um general anesthetic but it's usually done under the local anesthetic in saying that you know lots of women who haven't had vaginal childbirth you know have a marina it works really well for them it's highly effective contraception and increasingly a lot of athletes are preferring this because it doesn't have that systemic um you know high systemic hormones Then the other form is the copper IUD. So this doesn't have any synthetic hormones. It's, uh, you know, a little rod that has copper that also changes the 
uh, you know, the endometrium, so the lining of the womb, the cervical mucus, and makes, um, you know, it's highly effective for preventing pregnancy. People will continue to ovulate and have a menstrual cycle. Some people have a slightly heavier period. Um, some people don't. I think one of us might be on the copper IUD, if I remember correctly, Esther. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to share this on the podcast. I was on it. I took it out um, recently and I was actually going to ask you this and we can we can talk about it at the end. But like, man, my periods are like 10 out of 10 awesome now. Like I don't even know they're coming and then they just arrive and like they, I don't get any cramps anymore. Whereas when I was on the copper IUD, I had to Interesting. Quite, yeah. It is interesting. It shows how it can be really hard to know. And I've talked to you about the copper IUD and you said your periods weren't really heavy. But I guess we can't really remember what something was like previously. But in saying that, the copper IUD, for some people, they really like it. If someone had issues with iron deficiency, I wouldn't recommend it because it can have heavier periods. People, there is concern that it increases risk of ectopic pregnancy. The absolute risk increase is so, so, so small. I don't really have much concern about that risk gets more potential heavy periods so they're the two iud's and they are becoming increasingly popular for athletes that doesn't mean all athletes should go on it. it's not the best option for athletes but athletes who haven't been through a childbirth shouldn't feel it's not an option for them and you know it is one that i i do recommend it to people um that's so yeah so interesting and it's been i'll, yeah, I'll just I say it doesn't have any long-term impacts on on fertility either for some reason there's concerns that contraception has this negative impact on long-term fertility and I'm sure that's kind of patriarchal religious messages wanting to scare women from using contraception the pill does not have a negative impact on long-term fertility nor does the IUD um the sometimes the injections can take a while for fertility to come back but all hormonal contraceptions do not have any negative long-term impact on fertility can I just can I just throw in a question here, kind of based on what you've just said, but um, more for girls and women in their teenage years, growing up and going through puberty, is there a risk at like taking contraception, maybe more specifically the pill, um, when you're a teenager and your like menstrual cycles aren't quite like I guess regular. There, when I their risk that we do know adolescents who are on the pill have. Uh, slightly lower peak bone density than people who are not on the pill. And that's because our adolescence is a time of rapid accrual of bone density. It almost doubles in our kind of adolescent years. In terms of risk to the menstrual cycle, often in the first few years of periods, you have an anovulatory cycle. So you might have a heavy period and people are put on the pill. I hear this thing about the pill kind of causing normal pubertal development, which it doesn't. I don't have any concerns. My concerns would be that we do see younger women when, you know, adolescents on contraception, there is associations with a slight increased risk of uh, depression and other mental health issues. And it's a hard balance because if you're a doctor and you have a 16-year-old coming in and they're having, you know, they're in a sexual act, sexually active relationship. You want to do everything you can to prevent an unwanted pregnancy. Um, but we do know, again, that adolescents have 
a higher risk of having uh, a mental health complication from the pill compared to older women. That could maybe in part be association rather than causation. I joke that you go on the pill when you've got a new boyfriend and boyfriends are generally, you know, make us miserable. Um, you guys are both in happy, long relationships, so not always. I was just at your wedding the other weekend, Lids. Um, but, yeah, so I think, you know, highlighting that um, there are increased risk of depression and anxiety from hormonal contraceptions, especially the Implanon. And it's really hard to get good data. Most of the data on the mental health risks are from European, they are really great at collecting data in Europe and they have studies where they look at people when they're 10, 20, 30, 40 years old and they look at all the different factors that then associate those health outcomes later in life. However, what is hard to understand is if, someone goes on the pill and doesn't feel good and then stops it, it's hard, you know, they might not be included in that data. So it is really hard to know exactly, but that's why it's all about an individual, um, you know, person. Some people's mental health actually feels better on the pill and some people have such anxiety about an unplanned pregnancy that even for that alone, it's going to be beneficial. But that's why education is so important before someone starts a medication. They need to be aware of, you know, risks, benefits, side effects. And I do think, unfortunately, there is a little bit of paternalism in medicine about contraception, mainly due to fear of young people having an unwanted, unplanned pregnancy and not really explaining some of these contraception. For example, if you're on the pill and you miss a pill, unless it's just after the sugar pill week, it's still going to work as an effective contraception. But that's not explained because you know, we do have so much, you know, worry about unwanted pregnancy. And that doesn't mean we should be relaxed about its efficacy and not taking it properly, but more we need to be educating young women better about contraception because so many people are on contraception and it blows my mind how, you know, poorly it's understood and, you know, we need to do better. Totally. Yeah. Everyone just needs to listen to this podcast and then be supportive. <laughs> Uh, awesome. And then you touched a little bit before on uh, how many uh, high-performance athletes are going on the IUD. Uh, can you explain how the IUD impacts performance? I can't because there is essentially no evidence on this specific question. Unfortunately, of the different types of contraception, really the only one that has been properly studied is the pill. The other forms of contraception, which I'll briefly mention because I don't recommend them, is the Implanon and the injection. The injection, their depo three-monthly injection, has a negative impact on bone density. It completely, you know, drops your estrogen levels but doesn't supply synthetic estrogen. And we know it decreases bone density and it is pretty much the only hormonal contraception that we do have quite strong evidence that causes weight gain and increased fat compared to lean muscle mass. Um, obviously, Weight is not something we really care about at FEMI. However, for some people that would be distressing and we do want to focus on getting strong and maintaining our muscles um, as athletes. So the three-monthly injection I don't recommend for a few reasons. The other one is the Implanon, which is the high-dose progesterone rod that sits in the arm. That also lowers estrogen and stops ovulation. And the data on bone density is still unclear. And from an anecdotal and science mechanism perspective, 
I don't think it would be good for athletic performance and is likely going to have a more negative impact on athletic performance compared to the pill. And of all the hormonal contraceptions, it has been the one that's got the strongest association with mental health complications. Still, that doesn't mean it's not right for some people, but it is important to have those factors in mind when deciding which is the best contraception. Totally, yeah, that makes sense. And then in terms of like um, the IUDs, like why do you think from your you know, your perspective, they would be putting these athletes on that then as the best option. Yeah. So because it's not stopping ovulation, it's not stopping natural hormones, it's not giving synthetic hormones that are going to have a, you know, systemic. When I say systemic, that means going through the whole body. So if we take a tablet, it has to, you know, be absorbed through our gut, go into our bloodstream, through our liver, whereas the IUD is just at the you know, at the uterus and there's not very much systemic absorption. So I would recommend it because, you know, one, it's we're still making our natural estrogen, which we love. It's good for performance. It's good for high intensity exercise recovery. It's good for our health. And then two, you can still um, screen for relative energy deficiency and any potential negative impacts of, you know, synthetic progesterone. Um, you know, it shouldn't should be much lower compared to an option like the pill or the implant on. Mm, interesting. And you've explained the implant on um, and the injection. The other question I was going to ask is around the morning after pill, um, which wasn't something we had on our list to discuss, but I have definitely heard stories of athletes taking the morning after pill in order to like skip their periods or interrupt their cycles so that they don't end up having their period potentially on race day which I think is quite an old school mindset because we used to hate the, the thought of getting a period on race day it was like terrifying but now we know it's actually so fine can you just maybe explain actually how the morning after pill works and is it a bad thing to take or what's your thoughts on it? So the morning after pill is a high dose synthetic progestogen and it changes, it works a few ways to prevent uh, pregnancy. It changes the the lining, the endometrium. So if there is a, a formed embryo, it won't implant into the lining of the womb. It also can delay ovulation. So the, you know, depending on when you take it, if you've already ovulated and the ovary is just floating around looking for a sperm, that's too late, but it can actually delay um, ovulation. So it is, if it's taken straight away, relatively effective, 85% or so effective at preventing a pregnancy. In terms of if it's safe, definitely in the long term, there's no you know concerns. Again, a little bit like the pill, you do hear um, kind of old wives' tales. If you take the morning after pill a certain amount of times, you'll impact your natural fertility, which is completely incorrect. It is a really high dose uh, progesterone and high dose progesterones are generally what make us feel uh, tired and moody and can cause a bit of bloating. And that's why, and, and we discussed this in Themi theory, it would be net better, most likely from a performance perspective. This hasn't been well studied, unfortunately, but it would be better to actually just let your body have a period. Your hormone levels will drop, um, then be taking a really high dose synthetic progesterone uh, knowing that progesterones can impact our body's ability to utilize fuel source and glucose uptake into our muscles. Unfortunately, not well studied, um, but my advice anecdotally and as an endocrinologist would be to have the, you know, the period. 
um, rather than take the high dose hormone. Again, if you're someone who on the first day of your period gets, I don't know, migraines, all of these problems, and you're like, you know, in your own body, I 100% cannot perform, you would maybe try taking something to delay your period and see what it helps. Try doing a 5K time trial. It's like our race nutrition. We need to practice it. Um, I've had PBs on my periods. I think you two, um, I'm not sure about you two, but I think so much of that past fear was the fear of, oh, my goodness, imagine if someone saw some blood on my undies or through my race shorts. I was a gymnast. My biggest fear, I used to have to do one of my poses on beam was you're kind of doing a pike hold, but you're holding your legs up and, like, splitting them. So you're literally just, like, showing like your whole pelvic area through a leotard to the judges. And my fear was always imagine if I got my period on that day and we weren't even allowed to wear shorts. We used to get um, a point deduction for wearing shorts over our leotards. It's disgusting. Um, But yeah, so breaking down why you're so scared of getting your period on race day. Is it performance? Is it the period itself? Is it, you know, old wives tales, practice performing, see how it works for you. Um, but generally my advice would be yeah, not doing a high dose progesterone to delay period. Mm. Yeah. I remember hearing the story of a like high performance runner. I'm pretty sure she was competing at the Olympics. I might be wrong, but from memory, she was going into the Olympics and she was going to get a period on race day. And I think her, co- her coach encouraged her to take the morning after pool, maybe the week or two before to interrupt her cycle so that she wouldn't have her period on race day and she spoke pretty openly about the fact she got to race day and felt like complete trash because well she can't necessarily say that was exactly the reason but uh yeah like there probably is a correlation the last question that we have is based on the conversations around male contraception uh there is definitely a bit of I guess uh talk at the moment around different forms of male contraception being um, studied and tested is this like a thing do we think that this is going to become more common and that woman won't necessarily have to always be the one taking contraception ah it's interesting um yes there have definitely been uh attempts to make male versions of the pill something that complicates making a male contraception is that we need to prevent millions of sperm getting past whereas for a female we need to stop one egg that is there for five days of a month. And I often see, again, social media posts saying how patriarchal medicine is because we make women take the pill when they're only fertile for five days of the month versus men are fertile all the time. And I can understand why people would think that and maybe there is some truth in it. However, it is a lot simpler to stop one egg for five days versus millions of sperm all of the time. And in our, you know, new society that is very pro suing people if there was you know failed contraception and sperm had got passed it is you know it is complex also the other thing to think about is when they made the pill back in the 1950s or 60s the regulation for drug trials and safety is completely different to what it was now if they tried to get through the initial pills which were crazy high dose you know more than double what the doses are now they wouldn't get through fda you know safety approval they've had those you know pills made and over you know decades of research they have made them much safer and much more tolerable um however that wouldn't have happened if we made it now and 
So I guess what I'm trying to explain is it's hard to make a new medication. Um, there's a lot of specific challenges when it comes to a male pill because you have to give enough testosterone to suppress, um, you know, all sperm production without then um, – and then the other thing is when we suppress male sperm production through testosterone, it often takes one year, 18 months to get uh, sperm production to then recover. Whereas in the pill, it often recovers, you know, within a month. We hear people that go off the pill and they fall pregnant that next month. So it probably won't be able to be a testosterone version, which is what we have with the women's pill. We take the synthetic hormones and it turns off the natural production, which if men take testosterone, it also, you know, turns off LH and FSH, but it's a bit more complex. There are, um, there is research in this field, but realistically, I think they're quite a long way from making an effective uh, male version of the pill. And then finally, it is an interesting topic because if we're relying on a male to take the pill, but it's a female that then still has to essentially have the responsibility of the pregnancy will some women not feel comfortable maybe unless it was a very regular you know safe stable partner trusting them using that as a form of contraception and of course the pill um, male or female won't prevent from STIs and barrier contraception is important as well. So interesting I don't know if I would completely trust James taking the pill every day. I love my husband, but I don't know if I would trust him if it was up to him. So I can understand that for sure. But yeah, super interesting conversation. Thanks, Aziz. So, so good. I think that's all we um we have for you today. I found that whole conversation so educational and I'm sure all of our listeners would have taken so much away from it too. I do want to say for those listeners who are, potentially looking at using our Femi app. Um, we currently don't serve people who are on contraception. So if that is you and you want to use our app, just know that we are building features where we will be able to serve you in the in the future. But um, unfortunately, right now, we're just serving women who do have natural menstrual cycles. So um, yes, I just wanted to put that one out there. But uh, yeah, thank you so much, Dizzy. That was a great conversation. I don't know if you had anything else to add, Est. Oh, no, I just um, wanted to add that I also probably wouldn't trust Byron. <laughs> yeah, that, that it's, a, it's a big topic, that the male pill. But no, um, thank you so much, guys. I, I love chatting and it's so exciting and fun for me to share knowledge to a bigger population group than the one patient sitting in front of me, which is my normal day-to-day job. But just for anyone listening, know that there's no one right or wrong answer or solution when it comes to contraception. There are lots of different um you know, versions that could be right for you. And that's about uh, talking with your doctor, talking with your partner and uh, coming up with a plan that is, you know, safe, right um, and best for you. And finally, the other thing is things aren't permanent. Of course, you don't want to have to trial through different pills and have ups and downs with your mood if they impact you mentally. But again, things aren't permanent. You can try something and if it doesn't work, you know, change to something else. You don't, you know, want to go through that too much. But I think sometimes people are really scared of starting something and feeling like they need to be on it forever, which which isn't the case. So be informed, learn as much as you can. And, you know, again, know that there's lots of different options that would be right. Amazing. Thank you, Izzy. You're an absolute powerhouse of knowledge. We appreciate you so much. For those who do want to follow Izzy, we will take her into our show notes. You can go along and check out her page. She's always posting so much educational information out there as well. But in the meantime, if you want to get in touch with us, you can also get at us on Instagram at femi.co. 
and you can download the app we'll put that in our show notes as well but yeah thanks izzy we'll chat to you all very soon thanks guys no worries bye